is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello again, I'm Bruce Daisley. This is episode eight of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. You can catch up with all the previous episodes at our website. That's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm, sort of radio vibes there. Today's episode was provoked by an article in The Guardian just before Christmas. I've shared the link to it from our Twitter account. If you search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat on Twitter, you'll find that. And I've tweeted out the the link. It was by a guy called Andre Spicer, and it was entitled The Cult of Compulsory Happiness is Ruining Our Workplaces. Right then, because... I guess if the premise of this podcast is that happy people are more productive, then the whole point of that article was really a challenge to my belief. So I went on to read it and not only was it brilliant, but it inspired me to read Andre's other books. I mean, if you just hear the titles of Andre's books, you get a sense of the perspective he comes from. Uh, he says the stupid one of his books is The Stupidity Paradox, The Power and Pitfalls of Functional Stupidity at Work. And that's really about how we sometimes simplify things and simplify to, to a largely incorrect answer, but one that's easy to take in. He also wrote a book called The Wellness Syndrome, which talks about how we're being made to feel guilty for often unproven tweaks to our lifestyle. His writing is sort of irascible and spiky, and I was just fascinated to meet him. I have to say, when I met him, I was worried that he was going to torpedo anything that we've discussed on these podcasts, and he was going to give evidence that really sort of disproved all of the ideas we had. Instead... It was probably my favourite interview I've done. And this is by far my favourite episode. So what you're going to hear in the next 30 minutes, we we talk about uh, a concept he calls geek exploitation. We talk about the the pitfalls of open plan offices. Lots, lots more. I, I learned a lot of things that I think probably can really improve our working environment and our working lives. So I'll give him a proper introduction. Andre Spicer is the Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Cass Business School in London. He's also the founding director of Ethos, which is the Centre of Responsible Enterprise at Cass. Uh, he's an expert in organisational behaviour, in leadership, in corporate social responsibility. Man, I was kicking myself. What's the rule? You meet an Australian or a Kiwi, no one can tell the difference, right? So you always say to them, are you a Kiwi? Why? Because the Australians don't mind correcting you and the Kiwis are absolutely thrilled that you got it right. And what did I do? What did I do? I'm an idiot. I said, are you Australian? Of course he's not Australian. He's Kiwi. Anyway, I went down to meet Andre about a week ago. Let's play the interview. I thought your work was really stimulating because of all the discussions I've been having to date, it's yeah. really the counterpoint to it. You know, yeah. I think the one thing that probably runs through all of my preconceptions and my imaginings before yeah. was uh, to this Albert Schweitzer quotation that you, you gave that, you know, he says, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. And so, you know, that's an interesting idea. You're more successful if you're more happy. And I guess that was my 
notion when I entered this. Mm -hmm. And your work really takes issue with that, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. So if we look at kind of distribution of happiness, what we see, we know there's this this curve which shows that basically money actually does equal happiness up to a certain level, right? Um, and and afterwards it sort of it sort of plateaus off a little bit. But what we're trying to point out is this idea that if you somehow get to convince yourself and make yourself more happy uh, somehow by hiring a life coach or uh, doing mindfulness meditation or whatever intervention you might find, that you're suddenly going to become more successful in your life. Well, unfortunately, it's not the case. Um, So there are many interventions which we see which uh, try to aim at making people more happy. Um, And often all it does is ends up making them feel either A, more miserable or guilty that they're not being more successful. So let me give you an example of the more miserable. Um, There was a really interesting study done, which was about maybe 10, 15 years ago. um, And some psychologists essentially gave people a piece of music which should normally make either people quite happy. Um, And they told one group, okay, listen to this piece of music and pay attention to how happy you're getting. It's a very happy piece of music. You should get happy by doing it. The second group, they gave them the music and just said, listen to it, right? Then they measured, they measured them before and afterwards about whether they were happy listening to the music. And what they found was the group that was told, pay attention to the music and make yourself more happy by doing it actually became more miserable after listening to the music. And the other group who weren't told to be more happy became more happy. So what this begins to point towards is that if we're constantly told in our life, be more happy, focus on the good stuff in your life, la la la, what you often end up doing is missing the things which actually genuinely make you happy. So so sometimes this over-attention we give to happiness, I guess, draws out, it means that we end up... Uh, finding the things which would normally make us happy actually end up becoming something which is embittering. Maybe that should have made me more happy or something like that. So that's the first point. The second point is this relationship between happiness equals success. Um, what we've seen in the last, you know, like if we take the last 10 years, um, we've you know, had the Great Depression. And one of the reactions, uh, strangely enough, of uh, policymakers, but also corporations as they were firing people, as uh, the government was cutting back on welfare, etc., was to say, okay, we're not going to give you anything, but what we can give you is a life coach. And if you can increase your happiness rating, then that's great. So it seems that people aren't, be, aren't willing, being willing to being given a pay rise or better work conditions, or in the case of uh, government services, basic government services, will cut all of those things. All you get now is a life coach, and you get then a boost, boost in happiness. And most of the time that doesn't happen. So it's, it's, And the weird thing is there is that if we take it back to the workplace, um, what we know is that the actual major causes of happiness at work aren't necessarily, you know, having an upbeat attitude, uh, life coach, all that sort of stuff. It's actually just the design of the work itself, right? So do you feel like you have autonomy over your work? Is your boss, you know, fairly nice to you? Um, Do you feel like you're doing something purposeful? Those things is what leads to happiness. It's not, do you have half an hour, one time a week to do some mindfulness meditation? So I think changing the structure of work is what's more likely to make people more happy. And then, you know, that might be good in some ways. Right, so it's almost like happiness should never be the goal of the company. Is that is that what you, you're basically saying? Or, or it shouldn't be directly the goal. So you shouldn't be trying to do things. You should be more thinking, what are the components of the job that might correlate with people being more motivated yeah. or happy, but don't 
don't set out to, to do those things. Yeah. So the basic idea is that if you set out to get happy, it's likely you're going to end up more miserable. Often happiness is something which you find obliquely, right? So let's just take an, an idea that you're going to go for a walk, uh, walk up to the top of a hill, and it's a beautiful day. If you th you're constantly thinking, how happy am I getting? My goal is happiness of walking up here. It's likely that you're not going to find that particularly happiness inducing. However, if you say, I want to get to the top of the mountain, then it's likely along the way you might see a beautiful vista and then you might surprise yourself. I'm happy here. Uh, the English economist John Kay makes this point where he talks about um, uh, obliquity, so obliqueness. So we often achieve the greatest goals in our life, uh, which might be, say, happiness, if we think that's important, obliquely, right? We find it. Um, but by not expecting it. So maybe the times you've experienced happiness in the last you know, week or so might have been not when you were planning for it, but it came about in another way, right? Um, so, so I guess it's thinking about what would obliquely make us happy. And if you begin looking at a lot of the, the science on this topic, what you'll find is that stuff like uh, commuting distance. So for instance, if your commuting distance goes over around about 30 minutes a day, your happiness ratings shoot down. Um, it's things like uh, work stress, uh, having less autonomy at work. Um, it's things like provision of, uh, um, you know, public services. Also, like if you're if you're uh, in a very, um, how would you call it, competitive environment, you're seeing other people around you who are far better or worse off than you. It's likely your happiness ratings are going to go down. So it's all of these things which aren't necessarily about mindset, but more the kind of context around you, which is likely to make you less or more happy. I mean, we know that, for instance, depression is one of the major drivers of unhappiness, and that's linked with all of these other things rather than just mindset. And you touched on one thing there that I wanted to briefly cover yeah. on. So in, in one of your books, you talk about mindfulness, and we, we've yeah. mentioned mindfulness there. And, and I think, like you say in your work, you say that mindfulness has become this thing that we feel bad if, if someone tells us that they're spending time meditating, they're doing mindfulness. Yeah. We feel bad that we're not doing that. Yeah. And you say really explicitly, mindfulness is bad science. There's no correlation with mindfulness and any reduction in absenteeism or anyone feeling more fulfilled in their work. Well, so mindfulness, there's actually a lot of research which shows mindfulness is good for certain individual level right. things, right? So anxiety, for instance, or... Um, or uh, you know, ability to focus on a task for a significant period of time. Yeah, there's good evidence about that. Even, even for instance, um, in the one area I teach is in, in corporate social responsibility. And what we find there is that one of the only few ways you can actually change people's ethical orientation is to put them in mindfulness training, strangely, in a course. But if you want to say, okay, I want to transform my company as a whole uh, by giving people an hour or half an hour of mindfulness every day, that ain't going to happen, right? There's not a lot of evidence for it. But there is evidence about individual level stuff, right? So just if I take myself, I'm at the end of just today handing in a, a large book manuscript and a uh, very stressful time for my, myself and my co-author. And a few nights ago, I sat down and did 15 minutes of mindfulness, right? And I felt more focused and better and less anxious for it. But if I was forcing my whole company to do that, that's not necessarily going to mean the whole company transforms, right? So it's, it's meaning that individual level transformations might make a difference for the individual, but it's not going to save your whole company. 
Maybe if I can just one give you one small example of that. I remember uh, sitting on a panel once where there was a woman from the Department of Health there. And the Department of Health is, you know, constantly going through changes and it's under huge pressure. And basically most people who are quite senior, they're off on stress leave and so forth. Cause it's so, you know, they have no control because a politician comes in charge and they change things all the time. Um, and she went off on long-term stress leave. And then she came back and she'd found mindfulness meditation. And it really made a difference to her life fantastic but then she thought okay i'll provide this uh and people would go along after work and that's also great but then this idea that you can somehow completely transform a government department by introducing half an hour of mindfulness or an hour of mindfulness after work so it means you're staying for an extra hour after work uh while ha still having an extremely stressful day uh, it's not going to happen. What you should do if you really want to make more work more mindful is not add half an hour of mindfulness practice. Actually think about starting to make the work processes itself more mindful, right? So let me give you an example of that. If we think about, say, open plan offices, what that does, sometimes it's great for communication, but mostly data suggests that people just get distracted, they get more ill, uh, they find them more stressed, uh, there's more absenteeism, all of these kind of things if you have uh, flex work desks or open plan workspaces because they're getting interrupted. Now, if you do a survey and ask people, why did you have a good day today or, or not? This is what the Harvard Business School did recently. The number one thing which comes out of people saying they had a good day at work is when they were able to sit down for a, a, some period of time and focus on a task which they found meaningful, important, uh, etc., and make some progress on it. Yeah. It's that simple, right? And if you think about the way we design our workplaces, it's like, constant interruptions right emails all the time and social media and boss coming by and co-worker coming by and bugging you in another meeting you've got to go to when it's pointless what if we actually thought about redesigning work where it gave us just a little bits of period of time we we're actually able to focus on our work and when you get into that and you you know if you see your work as meaningful you then have this kind of flow state experience which people kind of aim for a little bit with mindfulness and hey presto you're actually finding your work as being a bit more focused rather than this disjointed and un unconnected experience that most people have in, in, in the kind of workplaces we work in often. Oh, fascinating. Well, that would, I mean, look, that would lead to a redesign of most contemporary office spaces, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, so we've been laboring under this illusion that the open plan uh, flex work environment, you know, it looks like a kind of uh, loft that's been taken over by some artists as the best way to organize stuff. No, most of the evidence suggests that open plan workplace is actually really bad, for, even for collaboration. Uh, there was a study, I actually had a student who was doing one at a, um, a study looking at a um, pharmaceutical company and basically they had drug developers. One floor was like lab, lab, lab where they had their own labs. The second floor they developed open labs and what they found is that basically uh, the rate, the amount of communication between people when they developed this open lab was supposed to go up but it actually went down. Right. Right? So people don't, they communicate less often when they're in open plan workspaces. I wonder if it's because we, we've conflated hierarchical systems yeah. And so it felt like the big office was the sign of what the boss had. Yeah. And so because we've tried to break down those hierarchies, yeah. offices felt like the, what they needed to, to, to sacrifice. Yeah. So would that be consistent? I remember reading the, the book about Steve Jobs and they were talking about Pixar, yeah. where everyone had their own environment, but there were a lot of social spaces that yeah. were designed to 
produce accidental, you know, exactly. serendipitous connections exactly. amongst people who'd previously been working on their own. Yeah, exactly. So what you need probably in, in design of space, you need to think about providing different kinds of spaces, right? We're all territorial animals, right? Even to the extent that if I sort of started grabbed your notebook over there and began flicking through, you'd get quite upset quite quickly, right? Even though maybe there's nothing bad in there that you wouldn't want to see. Why? Because it's your territory. And it's the same thing with workspaces. Even if you don't own the desk, someone coming into your workspace, unsettling it, 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 it triggers really primeval urges in us. And we don't know how to deal with those things, right? Wow, okay. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm fascinated about that. The, the one thing that I really enjoyed that you gave reference to was this description of the early dot-com agency Razorfish. And you say that they basically eradicated the distinction between work and home life. And so, so that effectively people stayed all the time. You called it sort of geeksploitation. Yeah, yeah. Geeksploitation, I should say that. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sort of why companies might have done that and... So I, I think companies did this for a range of reasons. One, one interesting argument, this is put forward by two French sociologists, is essentially what they were doing was copying a model which had been developed by uh, left-wing social movements during the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s and artists during this time, like the loft and it's all free-flowing, lack of hierarchy, all of that sort of stuff. And people who they wanted to employ they wanted that kind of workplace, right? They wanted to feel like they weren't at work, right? They just were doing this for a hobby and it was flexible and fun and you could bring your values to work and all of those kinds of things and sounded great. But the weird thing is that um, what it ended up becoming was this boundary between work and home, uh, which many people had fought against, including feminists, um, began to dissolve. Now, in some ways that was good because it, you know you could bring your values to work and show who you really were and all those kind of things. Um, but in reality, what that meant was that work bled into all aspects of people's lives, right? So uh, they didn't know when they were at work and when they were at home. So uh, now we have the experience where work, the first thing we do when we get up, we pick up one of these mobile phone devices and we check into work, basically. We check into our emails and see what's having happening. I think there's been surveys which suggest uh, you know, significant numbers of adults in the middle of the night wake up and they check their work emails, right? Which is crazy. So this idea that we, we, we're almost um, working in our sleep to the extent that uh, recently there was one computer coder we came across uh, who talked about this idea that he began to do what he called sleep work, which was essentially dealing with uh, solving computer co- coding problems in his dreams, right? Because it sort of bled into all aspects of our life. And the interesting thing to note then is that um, in many large corporations where, which have completely eradicated this boundary between work and life, let's say, the big problem they're sort of now sort of starting to ask is how can we get into people's sleep or manage people's sleep, right? Because sleep has become such a the kind of the last barrier to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like inception. Yeah, yeah. What you do? right? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, you mentioned one thing in uh, in the work that I read that was a survey by a supermarket that suggested that happier employees weren't necessarily the most productive or that unhappy employees were often quite productive. And you also mentioned these other jobs where being unhappy pays off. Yeah. Negotiators yeah. tend to negotiate harder yeah. if they're miserable. Yeah, exactly. And 
And so talk me through that supermarket one. Okay, so so it's worthwhile mentioning just to back up for a second. Um, there's this is a long-standing kind of issue in 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 studies of the workplace. Is a happy worker a good worker? And if you went out on the street, we went out on the street and asked people, you know, is a happy worker a good worker? Most people would say, sure, yeah, it pays off if your employees are happy. Well, actually, what hundreds and hundreds of studies have told us over time, this kind of job satisfaction uh, and, and productivity link, is there's a weak relationship, if there's a relationship at all. So there's kind of a like a little bit of a tick, but it's fairly, fairly weak, right? Um, and the reason for that, there's actually a lot of studies which shows that sometimes the, op- the the relationship is opposite to what you expect. So for instance, there was a study of Tesco's supermarkets, I think it was, and they looked at uh, happiness ratings and job satisfaction ratings in a number of their supermarkets and looked at productivity levels. And what they found is that the most productive of the, I think it was warehouses actually, the most productive warehouses had the most miserable employees basically, <laughs> uh, which you know suggests it's probably not so fun work. <laughs> there um, but there's also research to suggest that yeah happiness is important having happy workers is important for some kind of jobs like let's say a um, you know service job or client facing job you know you don't want to deal with too many miserable people but there are certain jobs where having someone who's upbeat and joyous all the time is not so good so for instance air traffic controller you don't want to like a super happy air traffic controller um, same thing with, as you mentioned, negotiators, that often uh, negotiators who are a bit angry sometimes get, often get the best outcomes. Uh, and the weird thing is that even even um, artificial intelligence is beginning to learn this. So I noticed last week that the, um, the uh, Google's uh, artificial intelligence uh, it's begun to learn in its negotiations it pays off to be angry and evil sometimes because you sometimes get the best outcomes rather than being nicey-nicey the whole time. So I guess the point here is that for many jobs um, having just focusing on happiness as one discrete emotion is probably problematic and you actually need to prompt a range of other emotions. The final thing I kind of just add on to this, it's really interesting to see what more broadly about the debate of this. Many of the experts around happiness are beginning to say well, happiness isn't the only thing which counts. Actually, one of the major things that people go in their lives more generally and also at work are looking for is not necessarily feeling happy all the time, but it's actually a sense of meaning, right? So we seem to be seeing this movement from kind of happiness to meaning, and often those two things aren't particularly correlated. So there's often jobs that people might do that don't make them particularly happy, but they often find it extremely meaningful, right? So in many ways, the question which we might ask ourselves is not necessarily how do you make people happy at work but how do you make your work more meaningful right and the way to do that i think i mean the 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 recent psychological literature suggests that to make things more meaningful you need kind of three factors number one uh what they call kind of um uh it's basically being able to understand what's going on like how does what's the story of my career history what's going on here at work and people who feel like they're able to describe a fairly coherent story of their careers, of their lives, and also of their organizations, that's meaningful for them, right? The second thing is they have a clear goal or end purpose or value which matters to them. And that's not maximizing shareholder value. It's it's doing something which, you know, has a value. So, you know, for me, it's educating students and doing research and communicating my ideas, uh, for maybe someone who works in the health sector, it might be, you know, making people well again. For maybe someone who works in a bank, it might be helping their clients. So a broader purpose um, that they find meaningful. 
And then the final thing is, does that purpose actually matter, right? Making a sense that what someone is doing on a day-to-day basis really means something, right? So if you think about, say, a cleaner in a hospital, cleaning up people's excrement at hospital is probably not the most fun thing. But you're then, if you think about that as caring for someone, and we know that one of the most important things in having good healthcare outcomes is cleanliness of a ward, right? It's 10, 20% of mortality rates. Uh, that's meaningful, right? Um, versus just if you're, I don't know, doing a cleaning job and there's no purpose and no meaning around it, then you begin to think my job is meaningless. And it's the same thing with middle managers, even high-level executives. If they feel like what I do doesn't matter, then it's hard to keep going at work, basically. Yeah. What strikes me about all of the, the things that you said here is that there seems to be so little intersection between people like you who study and try and understand what works and then all of the idiots running around doing jobs in the real world you know look you know the open office space doesn't seem to work you know trying to make people happy doesn't seem to work and yet meanwhile out there in the wild world these people saying let's take all the walls down in here Mm -hmm. let's you know buy everyone smoothies on Wednesday afternoons to make them happy and there seems to be like no connection how can academia and and forgive me, the real world, how can they intersect more meaningfully? How can they intersect better? Okay, so one way to to start answering that question is from the opposite side, which is to say, you know, I work in the middle of the city of London. This place is an organisation, indeed acts like a business many times, and uh, universities have increasingly come to sort of style themselves on the corporate world. Um, to the extent that they've started to develop all of the same kind of nonsense uh, things, time-wasting activities that most people complain about in the corporate world that Lucy Calloway, for instance, writes about all the time in her, you know, pointless rebranding exercises, uh, strategies that don't mean anything, um, meetings which go on forever and ever, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the same kind of stuff. So I think there's something there that, that, you know, that universities have kind of slowly been taken over by these sort of things. The second thing is then about how does how does ideas which are generated, you know, in universities but elsewhere actually engage with the real world. I think I think it's sort of um, people see it as partially about a kind of a communication thing because most of the time, you know, if I pick up one of these uh, journals which you know we write for like this. Uh, you know, if I read two lines from it, you're like, what does that mean, <laughs> right? Uh, so there's a question about the language and the way it's communicated. But I think also there's a sort of, um, there's a sense that often the ideas uh, don't, they often are disconnected. They need to be embodied into a practice or something which can be done or a model or a recommendation or something like that. Um, so it's about experimenting with new ways of living and doing and those kind of things. I think that's that's kind of and and many some people do this. So so for instance, if you look at the example around sort of why ideas about happiness have become so popular, there's a whole field called happiness economics, which has sort of boosted it to the top of the agenda. And it takes five or ten years time for it to sort of have an influence, if you like. Um, if you take the example of open office stuff, um, it's only in the last five to ten years a lot of this evidence come come out. And architects, uh, bless their souls, they tend to, you know, if you look at their models, they have computer-generated people there. Mm. And they just about never go back and say, what happened afterwards, mm. right? Uh, so it would be lovely if they, they might begin to think about, well, 
these are these imaginary people, but then there's actually people who need to work and live here. What would our architecture look like if we really took those people into account? Yeah. Mm. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I bet you if they go back, they'd say, do you enjoy your office? Yeah. And people would go, yeah, it's lovely. Exactly. Right? But they wouldn't actually then ask themselves slightly more reflectively, exactly. do I get a lot of work done here? Exactly, exactly. And the way the, the, one of the biggest trends, if you look at kind of work dynamics at the moment, is people either working in these co-working spaces or working increasingly at home, right? And part of the, 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 the desire to use these types of spaces is the rise of kind of gig economy, that sort of stuff. But also part of it is that um, people find that when they go into work, they get nothing done, right? Work is where you go to get nothing done. And uh, these other places are sometimes where, where you can actually be productive, right? <laughs> Which is kind of peculiar. Yeah, fascinating. The, um, the, the, I guess the, the one thing I wanted to ask at the end, really, was when you're advising people, when you're talking about th- these things, what, would, what do you advise companies to focus on, leaders and, and people to focus on? Is it about cultivating a sense of purpose? Is it about the environment that people work in? I mean, and you also talk in your other work about uh, the avoidance of sort of simplistic and reductive yeah. answers. So I know I'm asking you to give you so, yeah. me something simplistic. Okay, so I think if we take the example of like the basic idea, which we often have, which is uh, convince yourself that you're happy, look for the positive things, take an upbeat perspective on life, and then success will follow. Um, if you look at most of the evidence from psychology, it tells you that humans are weak, right? Changing your mindset uh, might change your behavior very slightly, but you're going to revert backwards. If you actually want to change your behavior, the best thing to do is to change your environment around you, right? Uh, So if you want to lose weight, don't try and convince yourself and mindset. Go and take all the fatty foods out of your fridge. Uh, Make sure that you have to walk, walk to work, you know, force yourself to do that in some ways with your environment, not changing your mindset. So I'm very much of the opinion that we need to think about ways in which you actually change the environment around people, which would then prompt good behaviors and whatever that might be. So, for instance, if you want to make people happy at work, uh, begin to design their jobs which are a little bit more autonomous. If you want to make them more mindful, give them a little bit of space where they actually can focus on a task. If you want to, um, to, to them to feel like their work is meaningful, don't sort of uh, just tell them, yeah, this is super meaningful. Provide them with ways and purposes and actual meaningful work, right? Opportunities where they can develop a meaningful career which sort of links together over time. Give them work which matters and explain why that's the case and give them opportunities to do that. The same thing with um, often organizations spend a huge amount of time developing kind of uh, taking smart people and essentially stupefying them. It's a a disaster. So what you need to do is to think, how can we ensure that these smart people actually use their brains? And one of the ways you can do that is to appoint people as, uh, say, be a devil's advocate for the day. You know, your job today is to, to, to be a naysayer, to question stuff. And what we know from a lot of psychological research, if you have a group of people and, you know, everyone pretty much agrees, like first person agrees, second person agrees, third person agrees, fourth, five and six are going to agree as well, even if they think it's wrong. Right. So if you then have that group, first person agrees, second person agrees, third person agrees fourth person says no and they might be wrong it's more likely that even if they're wrong the fifth person is going to come up with the right answer because at least someone's questioning it so organizations have lots of pas 
uh, personal assistants. Maybe we need a few more DAs, devil's advocates, whose role it is to call people out and to ask critical questions. It might upset people every now and then, but at least it will kind of get people thinking a little bit and asking a few kind of questions in some ways. It also feels, from what you said there, I mean, I, I love what you said there because I've always had this sort of suspicion that we become our building that we're in. Yeah. We become a, and you know, and it just feels like such a ridiculous thing to say, but you can have one company that moves from one building yeah. to another. Yeah, yeah. And this, uh, often you normally upgrade, don't you? But, yeah, yeah. but you move from, but some unexpected consequences yeah. happen along the way. Yeah. And what it makes me feel like, the, the very fact that you say our environment in every single way has a, has a, con, a contributory factor to yeah. the outcome, but it makes me think to some extent that you, you almost need, as well as like the boss creating a strategy, yeah. you almost need like a conductor of like <laughs> these exogenous factors that mm-hmm. thinks about, okay, we need a space for people to work here. Yeah. We need we need the, to, to people to be thinking about the meaningful aspects of these things. Yeah. So, someone who's sort of system thinking as well as the doing the strategy for a company. Absolutely. Because often, I mean, the interesting thing is that sometimes strategy is completely disconnected with these actual day-to-day things. So sometimes strategy documents are about providing direction. But a lot of the time they're about uh, convincing the analysts in a financial market firm that this looks good. And the percentage of strategy which is actually delivered in firms is probably quite small, I'd say. So I think, yeah, sure, do strategy. We all need to do it. Gives meaning, gives direction. But maybe you're right that there needs to be another kind of question, which is about sort of asking what's actually going on here on a ground day-to-day level and how can we make that sort of slightly more... Um, meaningful and better for people in some ways what a legend definitely my favorite kiwi andre was absolutely magnificent what i'm intrigued by you know is that a number of the academics have spoken to have said really similar things you know that we need to one minimize interruptions get into this sort of flow state two you shouldn't try to aspire to make people happy at work but you should try to aim to inspire people by the the job they do and meanwhile companies are just focused on frivolous things or benefits and perks which which just seem like night and day away from giving people satisfaction at work And, you know, the tragedy is the job of building office walls doesn't seem to be likely to happen in certainly in my working life. I was chatting to someone the other day saying, you know, it turns out having little offices and compartments is a good thing. And they said, yeah, yeah, our bosses have got them. No, 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 that's not what we mean. We don't mean offices as a status symbol, as hierarchy. We mean everyone should have little cubbyhole offices. I mean, maybe... Maybe it just wouldn't work out. Maybe it's not for the best. Maybe it's not for this life, Bruce. Don't dwell on it. Anyway, so good. I've really enjoyed that. Um, and I've got some really good episodes coming up. Over the next few weeks, I'm I'm going to hopefully broaden things out. So there's going to be a mix as we go through the spring. Um, but over the next few weeks, I should be talking to a lot of people who really understand teams and building teams. And that might be teams who work in restaurants. It might be military teams. It might be sports teams. It might be writing teams. So um, I've, I've got a number of those coming up. But I'm really keen to hear your ideas too. So you can tweet me. uh, Just drop me a line. Send me your thoughts. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe via iTunes. New episodes drop on Monday. Good. 
Thank you. I am so properly thrilled you listened. I'm Bruce Aisley. Come back next time and I'll provide cake. Cheers. <laughs>